Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rachel E. Barco, Vice Dean and Siegel Family Professor of Regulatory Law and Policy at NYU School of Law. We will discuss her new book, Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration, which will be published by Harvard University Press in March. So welcome to the program, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. All the pleasure is is all mine. Um, and I must say, uh, your book was was excellent. I, I read it cover to cover last night, and it's both, you know, really a kind of, frankly, a powerful indictment of the criminal justice system, but also a really great read. I mean, there's a, just a huge amount of stuff in there, but it was, you know, not... It, it, it was it, it was an easy book to read. Let's just say. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, if I may, you know, your your book is kind of broken down into three parts. So the beginning um, explains the problems with the criminal justice system. Uh, the middle identifies the causes of those problems, and the third part proposes solutions. So I, I was thinking that we could sort of spend a little bit of time on each of those in order, much in the way that you did in in the book. But I was I was wondering if we could start by um, kind of taking a step back to the kind of the broader kind of philosophical framing of the book uh, as well, which you 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 bring up in both the kind of the beginning of the book and then return to in in the end, these kind of two prevailing theories of the purpose of criminal justice, right? Deterrence and retribution, which we could kind of think of in consequentialist and versus deontological terms. And and those two competing visions are usually seen as being in conflict. And one thing I found really interesting was that you suggested in the current circumstance, um, they might not be so much intention. So why do you think that is? Well, I think one thing that we see with the current criminal justice system, and we don't really have one system, but you know, with the many criminal justice systems we have throughout the country, is a trend toward harshness. Um, looking at harshness as the solution to just about everything that ails crime in America. And so we could analyze that as being problematic from both the utilitarian and the retributive justice perspective, because I try to point out in the first several chapters of the book, as you mentioned, that many of these policies are counterproductive when it comes to public safety and crime control. So they're not serving the utilitarian ends that they aim to achieve, but they're also disproportionate and accepted excessively harsh from a just desserts perspective. So that political dynamic that pushes us toward ever more severe sentences and ever more severe policies really does end up undercutting those goals across um, both both of those dynamics where we see that in either case, uh, we're doing something that's too harsh. Now, that's not to say that they aren't sometimes in tension because, you know, they are. Um, and there'll be many instances where you might have one goal if you're perspective was utilitarian and another if it was retributive justice. But I do think there are many, many places right now where in whichever metric you're using, we're just doing things that are too harsh. Yeah. And and it, so in your book, I kind of got the sense that more of the focus of especially the, the critique uh, of the criminal justice system was from a deterrence standpoint, although certainly not to the exclusion of sort of thinking about uh, retributive type type issues. So m- maybe you could start by identifying what you see as some of the biggest problems from a deterrence standpoint with what our current uh, criminal justice system actually looks like. Sure. And I would say, you know, the reason that I focus on it from a, I would call it a, if our end goal is public safety, my aim was to say, how are we doing with that? You know, is, is the kind of approach we're taking an effective one if our goal is public safety to minimize crime, make people better off in our society? So that's how I would frame that utilitarian calculus. And the reason that I'm focusing on that is because I think 
people are under the misleading impression that these very harsh things we do to folks is actually making us safer, when in fact we have all these policies that um, either are having no effect on crime and public safety, or even worse, in many cases, uh, exacerbate criminal conduct, make it more likely that people are going to commit crimes. So my book is really aimed at that conventional wisdom that says you need to be tough if what you want is public safety, because that's just wrong. Um, and, and my hope is by giving very specific examples across a range of areas to show people that that may be an intuitive sense, but it's incorrect when you look at the data about how many of these policies work on the ground. Indeed. And and one of the kind of incentive-related points that you made early in the book, which I found really interesting, was, you know, if we think of, you know, potential criminals from a kind of rational actor standpoint, to the extent we think that's a sensible thing to do, that we may be focusing on the wrong things if what we want to achieve is is deterring people from engaging in criminal behavior. Yeah, I do think that there is this sense that if we just make the consequences of a criminal conviction sufficiently harsh and horrible, you know, people won't commit crimes in the first place without recognizing, one, that the deterrence literature shows that there really isn't a lot of attention paid to the severity of sentences or collateral consequences. It's much more about what are the odds of getting caught and the odds of detection. But, you know, even beyond that is forgetting that people that go through our criminal justice process in America, 95% of them are going to come back out again. And so if we want to think about what's the best way to get all of those people back into society reintegrated so that they're not likely to commit more crimes and instead, you know, choose a path of law-abiding behavior, so many of the policies we have that people think are serving this deterrent function, but do not, end up being criminogenic when it comes time for people to re-enter society because they just set people up to fail. We're making it so much more difficult for them to successfully reintegrate and live those law-abiding lives because we're imposing all these collateral consequences on them when they come back out. We detain them for so long that it makes the ability to readjust that much more difficult. We remove prison programming or make the opportunity for their loved ones to come visit so difficult that, you know, we we take their social networks and we disable them when, in fact, those are the very things that should be being built up for them. So all these things that, you know, may seem like, oh, this is great. Once people see how harsh all this is, they won't commit crime, that aren't serving any of those deterrent functions, then end up making it just really difficult for folks when they come back out again. From a, from a public safety perspective in particular, it, it seemed like you were really kind of drilling down on the fact that historically there was a kind of a strong rehabilitative quality to the way we thought uh, as a matter of public policy about how prisons ought to operate. And it seems like the, the, that's shifted and, and that rehabilitation, whether by intention or by accident, um, doesn't seem to be the focus, uh, of, of the criminal justice system in a way that it used to be, or maybe we're just not accomplishing it very well. Yeah, I think a lot of that was very deliberate. In fact, you know, I think if you looked in the 1970s, there was opposition on both sides of the political spectrum, left and right, to this idea that rehabilitation was working. You know, so you had some people who were on the more conservative end of the spectrum, viewing it as coddling people and being ineffective. And since it wasn't sufficiently harsh, it wasn't deterring enough, uh, waste of money kind of thing. And on the left, uh, concern that this was a paternalistic, oftentimes discriminatory practice that was, you know, targeting people of color and poorer people in particular for certain programming and insisting that they, you know, be better. And so this idea from both sides that, this wasn't working and it was a bad idea, really started to take hold. And I think at the same time, you do have rising crime rates. And I think it's important to take that historical context into account. The sense that in the 1960s, violent crime rates were going up and there was a general sense of social unrest. You know, there were riots and lots of protests and a kind of overarching 
feeling that society was, if not unraveling, it just seemed like it was just a very disruptive time. And I think you couple that feeling in the air with the actual rise in crime with this sense that rehabilitative programs weren't sufficiently working um, or weren't doing a good job to curb all of that unrest that leads to really a sense that we got to do something different. We got to be harsher. You know, the right approach is to shift and, and to be harsher on folks. And that really is a historical departure from what had happened before. You know, we have departments of corrections because the idea was that people could go in there and you could correct whatever it was that led to the criminal behavior in the first place. And you had the idea of parole and second looks at people's sentences because we would look and see, you know, how have they, how have they been doing after some period of time, you know, were they now ready to be released back into society because they had changed, they had participated in whatever programming or self-reflection was necessary, or frankly, in many cases, just aging out of criminal behavior. And therefore, you could adjust sentences accordingly because things had changed, circumstances had changed. You know, that was what American punishment looked like for a very long time. So this especially harsh kind of environment that's uh, anti-rehabilitative in nature, much more warehousing, really is a more recent phenomenon of the last several decades. But I think it was very much a, a deliberate shift. Yeah. And 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 I kind of wonder from a kind of deterrence public safety perspective, to the extent we're like weighing the costs and benefits of various decisions with within criminal justice policy, like what sort of factors should we take into account? I mean, should we only think about the likelihood of re reoffense or should we consider costs in, um, incurred or imposed upon the people who are being um, incarcerated as well? Oh, I think you're exactly right to frame it that way and think about it much more broadly. You know, I think there is in the political environment really a much more narrow focus on what reduces recidivism rates. You know, that's the metric that people are focused on and care about. And so the success or failure of a program tends to be measured by that. You know, if we do this, what will it do to recidivism rates? And that's certainly a, a factor to consider. You'd want to take into account whether or not they're affected by things. But that's not the only thing that we should be looking at. You know, even if people are still recidivating, we might think about, well, but are they desisting? Or now when they're committing crimes, are they lower level crimes? Um, even if they may be failing a drug test or not quite performing 100% in accordance with whatever their conditions of supervision are, uh, but they're clearly doing better. You know, we should be measuring that. We should be measuring the things that are helping people to improve. We should be measuring things based on, are we helping people to get jobs and to get training and education and control over drug problems or mental health issues? Because all of those things eventually will yield lower recidivism rates. You know, over time, they will mean less crime, even if you don't necessarily necessarily see results immediately. Some of these things may take a little longer, but we know those are the kinds of things that people need in order to get back on, on track. And so I do think we should consider all of that. We should consider the costs of our policies, not only on the people who are uh, subject to the punishments, but, you know, their communities, their families, when we do these things, they have ripple effects throughout communities. And, you know, they're often not good ones. Uh, you know, they may delegitimate how people view law enforcement. That in turn may itself make crime more likely because people won't report things to the police or they don't cooperate as much. So I think the lens definitely needs to, you know, be a broader one about how all these things connect. And one of the big failings we have with the political process and criminal justice is, you know, this really rudimentary, you know, tough things are better, <laughs> tough things are good for fighting crime, without ever even really looking to see if that's true, and not looking at all of the negative consequences associated with those approaches. You know, what does it mean when you send parents away to prisons for decades to their children? You know, what does that then do to their communities? And how does that then 
create potentially a new generation of people who are going to be more likely to have a harder time sticking to law-abiding behaviors precisely because we used punishment so excessively with their loved ones. You know, there's all these broader things to take into account that I think we just don't. And one of the reasons we don't is it's just this really simplistic soundbite approach to criminal justice where you could have somebody running for office and it's how do they paint themselves really harsh and tough in a 30-second ad and you don't get a lot of detailed focus on does that policy even work? You know, what's the downsides to doing that? That stuff just never comes up. So the tough on crime approach you describe is often, I think, associated with retributivism, whether or not it's sort of a conscious expression of a criminal justice philosophy. But in your book, one of the things I thought was really interesting was that you suggest that there's some problems with our criminal justice system, even from a retributivist standpoint. I was wondering if you could identify some of those and and why you think that retributivists should also be concerned about the way our criminal justice system is currently functioning. Oh, absolutely. I guess I'll start by saying, although I do think that there is an association of tough on crime with this kind of retributive sense, I think it is also associated with a utilitarian argument. One I think is misconceived because it's incomplete, but with this idea that if you're tough, you're incapacitating people. And if you're incapacitating them, you know, they can't commit crimes while they're incapacitated. So Mm. lock them up for a really long time without stopping to think, well, what happens when they get out? Um, And, you know, do we reach a tipping point where it becomes bad? So I will just say, I think tough on crime is the product of both of those things. I think it can be a sense of a misguided retributivism, um, but I also think it can be misguided utilitarianism. But Mm. on the retributive side of things, I think one of the things you'll notice if you take a close look at criminal justice in America is there, you know, there's, I see this all the time. If I comment on a criminal law story or give a quote to the press, there is almost always someone from the public who will say something in response to whatever I've said as well, then they shouldn't have committed the crime in the first place. You know, do the, do the crime, get the time. It's all deserved. You know, all of this is what they should have thought of in advance. And so there is a sense, I think, among conventional wisdom among the public that we have these proportionate punishments out there that, right, you commit the crime and then you get this proportionate punishment based on what you've done that's calibrated to it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, And in fact, we have so many disproportionate punishments, both in terms of if you were to thinking, relatively speaking. So you could look at jurisdictions throughout America and find that somebody dealing drugs quite often is going to get a sentence orders of magnitude longer than somebody who kills somebody. And I think most basic theories of retributive justice have a sense of relative rankings of criminal conduct that would say intentional killings are worse than dealing drugs. (laughs) So you'd want ideally to have that differently uh, set up in jurisdictions, but we don't. And, you know, one of the reasons is because if a particular drug ends up being the topic of media attention and public concern, quickly politicians will rev up to be as harsh as possible on that drug. And you may find that they're in this race for a mandatory minimum and harshness that the drug sentences get out of whack compared to other crimes. Or another way in which sentences become disproportionate is the way in which our laws lump together people that are really quite different in terms of their culpability, but the law will attach a single label to them. So, you know, if I said sex offender, most people I think are thinking, oh, child predator, rapist, the the most extraordinary, uh, worrisome kinds of, of crime within that category. And what they might not realize is that you could get the sex offender label in a jurisdiction if you urinate in public. You know, if you expose Mm -hmm. yourself in that way, uh, you'll get that very same label because the way the law was written, frankly, was sloppily drafted. And if you are a teenager and you send a text, uh, a picture of yourself, a nude picture of yourself to another teenager, that could meet the definition of sex offender in a jurisdiction. And what the law often does is just lump all those people, the rapist, the child predator, the teens who are sexting with each other, all in one category called sex offender. And that category will come with all these consequences attached that could range from lifetime registry to a host of other collateral consequences. And 
there's no proportionality there. Those are very different kinds of criminal behaviors, and yet they're all lumped together. So I think that's another example of where we're seeing the criminal justice in operation in America doesn't seem very proportionate based on what people would think is the right retributive punishment. And I could give, you know, we'll keep this to a <laughs> to a, a reasonable listening time for people. And the book has way more examples of this. But, you know, yeah. this is throughout the whole system. And, and I do think you're right to flag that this is something that should worry folks, not only from a utilitarian perspective, because we're giving punishments that are costly and make no sense given what people do, but also just as a matter of just desserts, we are really lumping in people together that have no business being in the same category, have no business getting the same mandatory minimums, for example. Uh, but we're painting with such broad strokes because of the politics that uh, that you do end up with these disproportionate punishments. So I, I, I found that argument quite um, intriguing and kind of com- logically compelling uh, based on my own experience with respect to certain categories of crimes. And, and I, I kind of wonder how much traction it gets with respect to especially sex crimes where there's so much stigma attached to to the label that, you know, I, I, clearly it's the case that like certain kinds of marginal sex crimes that probably shouldn't have been charged as sex crimes in or any kind of crime in the first place, um, people might feel were disproportionate. But, you know, I, 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 I wonder how much room there is for retributivists to wrestle with sort of the, the appropriate degree of severity of punishment for people whom oftentimes it seems like the public seems to think that you know any degree of punishment is is justified and i and i guess I, I mean i guess maybe it doesn't matter if like if we can make advances in one area and not in another then something is better than nothing but 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 i wonder what your thoughts are on that well i i do wonder how much the public would support some of these big sweeping categories if they knew the details. You know, one of the things that we get in our political system is you just can't be an expert in in everything. You can't know the details of all areas of law. And so I think a term like sex offender just carries with it certain connotations. And so, you know, you hear it and for many people that's like it. Fine, whatever happens to them is what they deserve. But I do think if you were to break down who ends up falling into that category given the way that laws are written, I think mm. there actually is more public understanding that even if some of those people still deserve some kind of punishment, they don't deserve the same kind of punishment. They, they don't deserve the same kind of punishment that they might have had in mind for the child predator. You know, I do think, um, you know, any parent of of uh, of a child or a teenager or a preteen can understand how they might get carried away with texts in their phone and also understand that the mind of those children isn't as fully developed as the mind of an adult. And so the idea of treating sexting the same way that you would treat those other things, I think even your kind of average member of the public would say, no, wait a minute, well, that should be treated differently. So I do think that um, there is a way in which if you could kind of one by one walk three walk people through some of the areas where these categories are too big, I actually think you would see a fair amount of shifting. You know, I think part of what ends up happening is just the nature of public discourse is they don't get that kind of detail. And and I will say one of the reasons why I have that confidence is I do think when you see people participating in criminal cases at the retail level as jurors, or when you give them more information about the facts of cases, they are way more measured in how they would punish those things. You know, they may support an idea like three strikes in the abstract, but when you give them the facts of a case and what someone will actually get from that third strike, uh, they don't think that's what makes sense at all. So I do think that some of this is just the mismatch between how we talk about things broadly politically versus if people knew. Now, that is not true of everything. <laughs> so I will say <laughs> that I think there is a level at which um, some members of the public maybe wouldn't care or would have this view that, well, you know, treating everybody harshly is is just fine. Um, so So part of it depends on you know, what the, what the proportions are. Uh, but the bigger point that I try to make in the book is, you know, whatever might be your retributive impulses, if I tell you that 
these kinds of policies are actually harming public safety, do you still want to do it then? And and that is mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I frame the book that way, because I think too often the public doesn't get that there is a trade-off in satisfying these retributive urges. You know, this idea that it may feel good in the short term to be very harsh because you have an image of who someone is who's committing a crime um, may end up undermining your safety because there are bad policies if that's what our goal is, is reducing crime and, and improving public safety. So, you know, yes, I think I could get some people on the retributive justice point. Um, but I think the the bigger argument or the bigger claim in the book really is, hey, you know, even if you have that impulse and you think it's, it's the right thing to do, it feels good, um, do you still want to do it even if it comes at this public safety hit? And there, I actually think many people would come out differently if they knew how many of these policies were counterproductive. So uh, that was one of the interesting takeaways for me in in your book as well, was the way in which the the public often seems to hold like multiple different perhaps conflicting values in mind at any one time. And that on an individual level, it seems like people can actually be much more kind of discerning and um, merciful than they might be in a sort of abstract situation. But like, given that general sense of what the sort of kind of mean public uh, attitude is how did we how did we get to the situation where we are now? I mean, you describe sort of a progression from kind of relatively more liberal and less punitive policies to increasingly more punitive policies. Why did that happen? Yeah, I think there's a number of factors that are behind it. So, you know, one that I'll start with again is this idea that there was rising crime rates at the time. And I think there is a a real concern in the 1960s and 70s with that rise in crime. And, you know, it creates an environment where politicians realize that that is a, that is an issue that people care about and they want to have an answer to it. And, you know, the easiest answer to give is I'm going to be tough on this. You know, I'm going to be harsh on this. That's a quick soundbite answer. It works really well politically and the public's receptive to it. I think the second related issue with that is, you know, nothing about crime policy in America can really be discussed without the interrelationship between that and uh, racial politics. So at the same time that crime is rising in the 1960s, you do have a lot of social unrest, particularly in America's cities. And a lot of that unrest when people are viewing it on the news, they're seeing black and brown people. And there's this association of criminal behavior in the minds of many Americans, that this is conduct that's taking place disproportionately by people of color. And so again, it creates this environment for politicians to play into that um, and, you know, suggest policies that may seem like they're not going to apply to many Americans. So if, you know, a kind of uh, uh, a person in the United States who's listening, a white person is listening to some of these policies, maybe thinking, well, that these are the policies that are going to apply to these other groups. And, you know, those are the policies then that are going to keep me safe. And that kind of racialization of it, I think, is also something we see. And again, we would see that at a time um, after that population of people had already been regulated by many other means through time. Um, But, you know, post-civil rights uh, legislation, post-Jim Crow, this becomes a new way to regulate a population of people of color. So I think that's another reason that this starts to develop. Um, Then you get some changes in legal doctrine, which also can promote some of these policies. So, you know, we have elected prosecutors and judges in the United States, and that's really weird as compared to other places in the world. And elections for prosecutors, judges, politicians, you know, they become more media. There's television. um, There's advertisements. It's a a media intensive environment where, again, having these sound bites of being tough uh, persuades people and it becomes a way to win elections. And as that starts to happen, the people in those elected offices recognize that it's it's good for them 
to be tough. And that includes people who are prosecutors who may be aspiring to higher offices in, uh, and not just being prosecutors, but maybe moving on to being governors or to other political offices. And so they're pushing for these policies and they're pushing for legal changes that make their job easier. You know, it's good for them to have mandatory minimums. It's good for them to have lots of criminal laws on the books. Um, so they're advocating for those things and creating an environment then where they're going to have more leverage and more power over things. And you have a Supreme Court in all of this that essentially kind of lets all this happen without any oversight. You know, there's really no Eighth Amendment oversight of punishments outside the death penalty by the Supreme Court to speak of. Um, they're they're not inclined to find anything disproportionate. So punishments keep getting ratcheted up and they don't do anything about it. They allow this system of prosecutorial power and plea bargaining to get embedded. And so prosecutors can threaten people with sentences orders of magnitude longer if they go to trial than if they plead. And so, you know, before you know it, you have a system where, you know, 95% of convictions are the result of, of pleas uh, instead of, of trials. And so I think all of this together creates this environment that just things get ever harsher. Um, and then you add to that the fact that if anyone wants to try to move in the other direction and, and lessen any of this, you know, the upside of that uh, is is unclear, but the downside for them is an enormous risk because, you know, they risk their Willie Horton moment. The idea that Michael Dukakis had that ad against him because he had a furlough program when he was governor of Massachusetts that was actually a really successful program. Um, you know, 99% plus of the people in that program returned to the facility with no problem whatsoever. But, you know, one guy didn't, and he becomes the poster child of this ad. And that really sinks in with politicians to say, I don't want to be associated with any policies that could create a risk like that for me. Why should I do that? Um, and so all those things together really do create this ever increasing pressure to just get harsher and a much more difficult environment to get less harsh. And then the last thing I'll just say about that is, you know, before um, – we had some of the policies really kind of went under the radar. You know, you could have parole or you could have discretionary sentencing. And it was it was kind of unclear what actually did happen to someone. They might get a sentence at the outset of like, you know, two to 20 years. And there wasn't really much uh, thought about, well, which is it? <laughs> you know, is it two? Is it 20? Um, you couldn't necessarily figure it out. But you get a media environment where they just pick out every last case of somebody that may have been sentenced leniently um, and then went on to commit a crime, you know, those are really effective news stories. And so the the media attention to criminal justice is another huge part of this story where they constantly run crime stories, you know, the gorier the better. So the public has really little understanding of whether crime is rising or falling because the percentage of news stories is pretty much constant throughout as just most of the news is a, is a bad crime story. So I think all of that together creates this political environment that makes it almost impossible to have a rational discussion about any criminal justice policy. Yeah. And, and, and it really seemed from your description, it really seemed like the, the ideology of this shift was driven by, as you say, a number of different factors, you know, some, political kind of intentional factors about kind of shifts in thinking at a certain period of time about what the goals of criminal justice policy ought to be. Uh, but also some perhaps um, sort of changes driven as much by kind of rational responses to institutional incentives or sort of lack of good information about what policy outcomes actually were. And so I wonder, you know, in thinking about trying to fix or mitigate these, these problems, um, do changes stemming from different sources present different challenges, uh, and demand different solutions or 
are there ways of sort of tackling them all at once? Well, I think there are some differences. You know, so for example, if we think about prosecutorial overreach or this idea that prosecutors have this incentive to push for things that make their job easier, right? It makes their job easier to have longer sentences, gives them better leverage in negotiations with defendants, makes their job easier to have mandatory minimums because then if they threaten those charges, there's no uncertainty about what a judge might do later that mandatory minimum is going to kick in. So, you know, those things are good professionally for prosecutors and the incentive is for them to pursue those things. And the incentive had been for prosecutors, you know, to be as tough as possible. So there was this kind of unity of both their institutional interest and their electoral one because both played pretty well. Um, But I do think we're seeing a shift now, for example, in how to approach who is a good prosecutor. And certainly, at least in some jurisdictions, um, urban jurisdictions in particular, where you have a population of people who are feeling the brunt of some of those tough on crime policies and who realize they don't work very well. You know, their crime rates are still high. um, And so they're not actually seeing public safety outcomes. And what they are seeing, though, is their communities getting destroyed by mass incarceration, you know, by having so many people get sent away to prison or locked away in jails. And so in those places, we're seeing this movement now about who should be elected a prosecutor. And the response in those communities to wanting what, you know, people are calling them progressive prosecutors um, or smart on crime prosecutors, whatever label you want to use for those folks. The idea behind it is that the electorate now does see some tension between (laughs) some things that might make leverage for prosecutors better, but might actually be really bad from the community's perspective of what's a just outcome. And so if you had a prosecutor that before might really like pretrial detention and bail, and avoiding any risk of letting someone out, if now you have communities that see that people are being detained pre-trial at ridiculously high rates and it makes no sense to do it and it creates more crimes later because you're taking people away from jobs, from childcare arrangements, from networks of support. Um, so it's a bad policy. Uh, now you're starting to see communities say, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to elect a prosecutor that supports a policy that's bad. I don't want prosecutors who want to do these same kind of unthinking things. I want prosecutors who are committed to doing things that work and that are just. And so this movement to elect progressive prosecutors, I think, is a good example of an area where maybe we could use the fact that there is some political oversight to improve that position. Um I think that is limited in its value, honestly, because I think it's only going to work in those spaces where you do have a voting public that cares about these issues. And it's not, for example, a district or a county where the folks may be, frankly, more divorced from criminal justice policies where they live. And they're perfectly happy to have harsh policies, you know, in other spaces. And so they like their prosecutors harsh, (laughs) you know, so, you know, we're not yet seeing a big shift in in prosecutorial power in rural communities or communities that have a bigger chunk of suburban voters, you know. So whether that mechanism works as an oversight mechanism, I think is place dependent. Um, And I think it can be helpful, but I think it's not it's not going to be one size fits all. So, you know, that might be one example of what you're talking about. I think there are other solutions uh, that I see as addressing some of these dynamics that aren't limited in in geography, you know, whether they're feasible to actually make them happen is one thing. But, you know, for example, mm. I have a chapter in the book that talks about the courts, because I do think that's been a piece of the criminal justice reform puzzle that has not gotten sufficient attention. But the court's have really not done an adequate job policing some of the constitutional protections that we already have, you know, but they're just not doing anything about. So the Eighth Amendment is a perfect example of that. We have punishments that, you know, are disproportionate under any rational meaning of cruel and unusual, but courts just aren't doing anything about it. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think we see that is, you know, who gets selected to the bench and who who's making these decisions. We have a bench in the United States that is dominated by former prosecutors, dominated by people with government side experience. And I think that affects the way in which these judges view cases that involve questions about government power. And I think one thing that would be helpful is to really think about who should be on the bench. You know, why don't we see more uh, people 
as judges who were former public defenders and public interest lawyers and civil rights lawyers. You know, I think about when the uh, seat for Justice Scalia's seat opened up on the court, and I talked to people about who I thought should get that spot. And, you know, the first person who came to my mind was Brian Stevenson. I thought that was <laughs> the most natural person to to think about um, having a Democratic president appoint. You know, he has tons of Supreme Court experience. He is one of the finest lawyers we have in this country who's made the biggest inroads on doctrinal developments. He is, you know, you won't find anybody of better character, you know, higher intellect. I mean, who could ask for more? And the mm-hmm. fact that that wasn't even on the radar of kind of the way people think about it. Instead, it was like, well, let's look to who's already on the courts around the country. <laughs> you know, lo and behold, mm-hmm. they're all former prosecutors, not all, but, you know, a lot of them are former prosecutors. And, you know, nothing against Merrick Garland, who I am certain is also an upstanding man. But, you know, look at his profile. You know, this is a longtime federal prosecutor. That is how he made a name for himself, you know, before he came on the bench. And the idea that that would be kind of the natural person to think about for that seat, I think really does say a lot about where we are in terms of thinking about the courts, that the criminal justice reform community and movement, you know, I think they should be as active in thinking about these open seats on the bench as other rights groups are. You know, it's certainly the case that, you know, if it was a question of labor rights, um, or reproductive rights, those groups are very attentive to how important the court is to their to their mission. Um, but we haven't yet seen that with folks who are interested in criminal justice reform. And I, I really do hope that one thing the book does is is bring a focus to that because I do think it's really important to have judges policing the constitutional guarantees that are already there, making the discretionary judgments that they have with backgrounds that really look like the legal profession as opposed to just one chunk of it. So, so this was actually something I, I found really interesting in, in terms of the historical story you tell as well. And it reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, Carissa Hessick the other day where it seems like there's kind of historically a decrease in the discretionary authority of judges with in relation to a lot of criminal justice related issues and a corresponding almost contemporaneous increase in the de facto at least discretion of of prosecutors in the same area where it's almost like a shift of lawmaking authority from you know one area to to another. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like it was driven initially, at least in part, by a concern that, you know, there was a certain amount of unfairness associated with judicial discretion, which has been simply replicated in a similar, if not worse, amount of unfairness uh, and inequity in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. And it seemed like you were sort of sensitive to that in the book and proposing more administrative approaches rather than a kind of um, wholesale shift of authority from one place to another. Is, is, that, is that a fair reading of, of, of what you're kind of proposing? Yeah, I think um – I, well, I, yes, it is a fair reading, and I certainly agree with your diagnosis of the problem, that we have seen a shift in uh, power and discretion from judges to prosecutors and, you know, from other actors in the system to prosecutors. So when you get rid of things like parole, you know, you no longer have those actors playing a role or, you know, you don't have as much clemency by governors or the president, you know, all of that ends up meaning that prosecutors and their decisions are the final ones. And they have way more, um, you know, they're much more consequential as a result of that. So I would say, you know, that's right, that we have seen a decrease in judicial discretion and the discretion of other actors, the jury, for example, where, you know, disappearing jury trials, we really cabin what it is they can do uh, in terms of the limiting instructions to focus on the facts. Um, and so all of that ends up shifting more power to prosecutors. I would say in terms of how to fix that, um, that there's a, a several things that I think are necessary. So one is, though, one would be giving more power back to judges. So I, I do think it's important not to have things like mandatory minimums because that gives all the power to the prosecutors, not just to bring charges, but to decide what sentence someone's going to get. You know, most cases involving mandatory minimums, um, that is what the person gets. It's not like they get much beyond that. And so that's picking the sentence for somebody. So the 
the prosecutor in that situation is effectively not only enforcing the law, they're the judge of it. Um, and I, I think getting rid of mandatory minimums and giving judges more discretion at sentencing is one check on that that's really important. So I would do that. I would reinvigorate the jury and its role so that um, both having jury trials and even the threat of jury trials is more meaningful on prosecutorial oversight. And so I do think courts have accepted too unthinkingly, in my view, the idea that a prosecutor could threaten sentences, orders of magnitude higher if somebody goes to trial and not find that coercive and an unconstitutional condition on the exercise of the jury trial right. You know, I think that's an area of doctrine that is really in need of serious repair. And and if it was, you would see both the threat of a jury trial and an actual jury trial also exercising more control over prosecutors. Um, and then there's what you mentioned, which is really thinking about holding them accountable and having more of an administrative structure in place that looks at, at results. You know, for right now, the metric for judging is someone a good or a bad prosecutor all too often is just, well, there was some high profile case in the news. What happened? Did they get a long sentence? Did they get a conviction? Oh, that's a good prosecutor. And, you know, that is a really poor metric for assessing whether or not they're doing a good job if our goal is public safety. You know, we would want to be looking at way more than that. You know, what are they doing to address excessive pretrial detention? We know that's bad for public safety. Prosecutors should not be demanding pretrial detention at the rates that they are. You know, what are they doing to help people successfully reenter and reintegrate when they come out? You know, the, the best prosecutors out there take into account that fines and fees can be debilitating for people's ability to, to lead law-abiding lives and they you know they help forgive them they make sure that uh, people have uh, employers in the area know how important it is to hire people who are formerly incarcerated you know having different metrics for assessing prosecutors and then having agencies in place that that set criminal justice policies that make a good use of our limited uh, resources. You know, right now, if you're a local prosecutor and you send somebody to state prison, you know, you don't pay for that. <laughs> you know, you're you're paid out of your local district county tax base uh, and you send them away to a state prison that's covered by, you know, the state FISC, not you. Um, and so prosecutors overuse that resource. Uh, but you could put agencies and oversight mechanisms in place that limit how many people they can send there, you know, give them a proportionate share, but don't let them go over it or make them bear some of the burden um, and put people in in local jail facilities and then it's coming out of that local tax base that may affect how many people go there you know there's there's a lot of different mechanisms I would say that could help deal with what you're talking about in terms of that disproportionate discretion um, but I, I would say one thing that's also really important is just getting people to realize it you know when I was on the sentencing commission we would have the Department of Justice come in and testify oh these judges you know they're all over the map you know you get one judge uh, in the Ninth Circuit is doing X and another judge is doing Y and you need to tighten up the sentencing guidelines because you know the judges are completely inconsistent and you know every time I would think well so are your prosecutors you know if we did the exact same thing and we asked the the same question, we would find that it really matters who your prosecutor is. But the way this um, sentencing reform movement kicked off in the 70s and the 80s, the focus was on judges and it was on sentencing and it was on curbing their discretion and authority. And, you know, it's just kind of an, an oddity that no one really thought about, well, what about prosecutors and all of their arbitrary decisions and all of the inequality we would see depending upon which prosecutor you get. Uh, and, you know, that's still understudied and underlooked at. Um, but, you know, it shouldn't be because they have so much power in the system. So, Rachel, in closing, I was wondering if you could make any suggestions for for people who are concerned about criminal justice reform, about like what priorities they ought to have or what what they can do to best help effectuate some of the kind of structural uh, and institutional changes that you're talking about. Yeah, so I guess my hope would be for people who are pushing for criminal justice reform to figure out what they want to ask for. You know, I think right now there's a tendency that the, the ask um, with the momentum what they're asking legislators to do is, you know, hey, lower this sentence 
or change this law. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, but if that's the only approach that criminal justice reformers take, it is going to be so incremental and so modest. It won't make a dent in mass incarceration because even as they may lower a sentence modestly here or there, they're still raising sentences in these other areas or they're adopting harsh policies somewhere else. Um, and the reason for that is this political dynamic just makes that too tempting and it creates a disincentive to lower things too much. So what I would advise someone who cares about criminal justice reform to do is push for institutional changes. So, you know, to the extent you have political momentum, to be asking for institutional fixes as opposed to just adjustments to laws. So ask to put in place agencies that are charged with keeping the prison population either where it is or even better to lower it. You know, put caps on the amount of money that can be spent on incarceration so that it's not just a uh, the ability for a jurisdiction to just keep building more and more prisons and spending more and more, you know, put in place fiscal caps, put in place agencies that are required to set the policies in the jurisdiction and the sentences and various other collateral consequence policies. Um, with evidence and data. So they have to show why those policies will promote public safety and what they're looking at to back it up and have those agencies like every other agency, uh, major agency in America, face judicial review. So if they are challenged in court, they have to show why their decision isn't arbitrary and capricious and why there's a basis for it. Because once you start doing that, once you start putting in place accountability, what you find is we have a lot of policies that won't pass muster and it'll, it'll shift the conversations to the things that work, you know, require jurisdictions uh, to reevaluate collateral consequences to figure out which ones of those collateral consequences are narrowly tailored uh, to achieving public safety outcomes and which one of them are uh, impeding reintegration. And you have an agency charged with doing that, um, you will find most collateral consequences will go away because uh, they're just not justifiable once they're given any kind of scrutiny. So so I would urge people to really think about that, that kind of big institutional reform. And it may sound strange and it may sound wonky, <laughs> but that is what we do in most other areas of public health and safety. You know, we don't kind of go to the legislature one by one and say, here's how I want you to think about mercury, um, or here's how I want you to think about this other chemical. You know, instead, what we did is we created an agency that is supposed to keep an eye on where we should set various levels for things based on the best evidence they have, um, with an eye towards maximizing public health and, and safety, and then facing judicial review for its decisions, making sure their cost benefit justified. You know, that's what we do uh, for occupational health and safety, the environment, telecommunications policy, you name it. Um, this is a good mm -hmm. structure, and, and it's a structure that recognizes there is expertise out there. You know, there there's something better than just the best gut reaction of a voter who saw one 30-second political ad. You know, there's actually a body of knowledge out there that would lead us to better outcomes, both in terms of public safety and more just outcomes that are also less discriminatory. So, you know, to me, this is one of those real tragedies of American law because I look around and I see there is a win-win for everybody here where we could have better public safety, and we could have less injustice. And the only thing that stops us from having those things is just this perverse political process that can't assess it rationally. So so I would just urge people to look at those institutional reforms, you know, demand better judges, demand judges that represent a range of professional experience, um, and to continue in the places where it's already started, really focusing on who's elected and selected to be a prosecutor so that you get people who are committed to achieving real results as opposed to just empty rhetoric. Well, Rachel, thank you so much and congratulations on your excellent Oh, book. thank you so much for this and for taking the time to read the book. I really appreciate it. I've been to the prisons at Norfolk, Concord, Framingham, and Walpole. People in confinement day after day, no job training, no education, no rehabilitation. Let me tell you, if they didn't go in as hardened criminals, they came out that way. So when we tackle prison reform, 
we were really trying to stop that vicious criminal cycle. That's what the furlough program and work release are all about. And I'll tell you why I think it'll work. I also replaced the old juvenile prisons with new rehabilitation programs. And that is already working. The number of juveniles returning to crime has dropped from 83% down to 25%. And these are not our figures. They're from the Harvard Law Center for Criminal Justice. 